I'm going to be reading from Luke 4, 31 to 37. This is Luke 4, 31 to 37. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits, and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, indeed. Who is your favorite preacher? Is it uh, Tim Keller, John Stott, Billy Graham, Martin Luther King Jr.? What if they walked into our sanctuary today? What if Rob and Rob, our two elders, saw them and thought, wow, that's Tim Keller, that's John Stutt, that's Billy Graham, that's Martin Luther King. We should get them to say a word or two whilst they're here. This is a common practice in the synagogues in Jesus' time. Quite often itinerant preachers were walking around and they would be asked to open the text and to expound on what they had seen. And, and Jesus, although he is not educated and not belonging to a particular school, has already started to gather some fame. And so when he comes to Capernaum, a small fishing village, home of Peter and Andrew, James and John, the rabbis in the synagogue, they say, Jesus, you're a teacher. Will you open the word? Will you share with us? And Jesus stands up and he blows them away. He completely blows them away. I'm not talking about blows them away like John Stott or Tim Keller or Billy Graham or Martin Luther King. I'm saying that they are shocked, they are stunned, they are transformed, they, are, they encounter something which they have not seen before and they are amazed. Verse 32, simply just, we just read six verses here, seven verses, and twice we see this. They were amazed. They were amazed. Why were they amazed? Why were they amazed? Well, we see that there are actually uh, there's actually two times in this passage that they're amazed, and they're amazed both times because of the authority of Jesus' words. Both in 32 and 36, because of the authority of Jesus' words. And we're going to look at those two things. First of all, we're going to look at the authority of Jesus' words in his teaching, and then we're going to look at the authority of Jesus' words in uh, over evil spirits so the authority of jesus words in his teaching and the authority of jesus words over evil spirits now this authority wasn't just someone who spoke with a commanding presence there was something unique and different about jesus's preaching hopefully when kyle and i preach we we preach with some degree of authority we don't wishy-wash around and we don't sort of like pull things out of the air and we don't say well I don't know unless we don't know in which I hope we, we do acknowledge that we don't know but 
there's something more going on here. When Kyle and I preach, we don't just uh, pluck ideas out of the air. We don't just sit in front of the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, tell me what to say. We certainly do lean in the, to the Holy Spirit, but we also use research. We look at what other rabbis or teachers or authorities have said. We stand on the work of history as well as the work of the Holy Spirit, on the work of others and the authority of others, as well as the Holy Spirit speaking through us. We stand on our training and the wisdom we glean from other sources. If we were to footnote... Most of our sermons would just be asterisks and footnotes. So we don't. But trust us, we use references, we go to sources, we read and we pray and we submit them to the Holy Spirit. We speak with an authority that comes out of history and from Scripture. That is not the authority that Jesus had. Jesus' authority was more profound, more shocking, more transforming, more amazing than just someone who speaks well with clarity and authority. Let's have a look at Jesus' most famous sermon in a summary form, the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to read this to you because we're starting to get a picture now of the depth of that authority. You can see on the screen there that he begins in Matthew 5 uh, and there's 17 to 20. And I'm going to read that aloud. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Claiming in his own words that he is going to fulfill the prophecy. For truly I say to you, until heaven or earth pass away, not a iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Applying again that he is the one that's going to accomplish this. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And at that point, everyone listening is panicking because they are the ones who by definition relaxed, by definition not met. And most confronted of all here are the scribes and the teachers because they know that they have found ways around the laws. The same scribes and teachers that uh, Jesus in this, uh, in this parallel passage in Mark is compared to. See, in this passage, in Luke, we see a slight difference from the full wording that we see in the passage of Mark where it says... They were amazed at his teaching of authority, not or unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. So again, we're seeing Jesus himself comparing his teaching to that of scribes and Pharisees. He goes on to say, But whoever does them, all of the law, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And only, only Jesus fits this picture. And he's making that claim at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount goes on to say, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, who are considered to be the most righteous of all, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's how he begins. Telling them straight away that somehow you need my righteousness because your righteousness isn't going to make it. Because even the most righteous aren't going to get into the kingdom of God on their own, those scribes and those Pharisees. But that is a radical claim that his righteousness stands there as good enough. Only his righteousness stands good enough. And then we see, he goes on in the Sermon of the Mount, with these, uh, with these, you have heard, but I say. You have heard, but I say. And this is a direct confrontation, firstly, with the Pharisees and the scribes, 
who have said plenty of things, you have heard it said that you shall not murder. But I tell you, anyone that hates someone who calls him Raka or you fool has committed murder in his heart. You have heard the teachers and the scribes say, do not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who divorces his wife for any other reason except for marital unfaithfulness has committed adultery in his heart. You have heard it said that you shall not... Oh, that was divorce. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Uh, but I say, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery there. You have heard it said, you shall not break an oath. But I say to you, there is no need for oaths at all. You, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I say, turn the other cheek. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say, love your enemy. Again and again and again through this, he is directly confronting the, teachers, the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, the interpretative work of the scribes and the Pharisees. And of course, he's not just claiming authority over the scribes and the Pharisees, he's claiming authority over Moses. These are the Ten Commandments, or parts of the Ten Commandments that are coming out. He is saying that I have even more authority than the great prophet Moses. And we see at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in verses 7, 28, and 29, they had the same reaction as they had in the synagogue in Capernaum. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught with one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So hopefully we're seeing straight away that there is a, an incredibly profound claim in the authority of Jesus. He's claiming to have authority over the law. He's claiming authority over Moses, authority over all of the learned scholars. Here's this itinerant preacher coming and saying, I am the very definition of what the prophets, the fulfillment of the prophets. It is my righteousness. Only I meet that standard. Nobody else does, not even your scribes and Pharisees. This is confronting, difficult, profound, and amazing claim to authority. And as we look at this, we are people of the word. And what does it mean to be people of the word? I said it last week and I'm going to say it again and you're going to hear it. This is the main takeaway from today's sermon. We are people of encounter through word and spirit. We are people of encounter with Christ through word and spirit. We are people of the word and the word is living and active. Just as these people sat in that synagogue and heard the words of Christ and thought it was amazing and were transformed by it, were shocked, were confronted, were told who Christ was, so the living word does in us. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5 For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. This is Paul talking. Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. And I'm going to say this probably three or four times in this passage because the takeaway, the walkaway here is we need to be deeply in the word with the power of the spirit. We see in Thessalonians 2.13, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, that this word and spirit, this encounter with Jesus, 
Let me say it again, this encounter with Jesus, like they were in the synagogue, through word and spirit, is what, trans which changes us, which makes us whole, which completes us. And we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which indeed is at work in you who believe. Now hopefully this sounds familiar from what we were talking about last week. The word is gospel power. It transforms lives. It changes humanity. It's important for us to work out what it means to read, to listen, to chew on, to memorize, to sing, to encounter Christ through his word, to pray for the Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to give us wisdom through his word. It's living water. We do not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Prioritizing word in prayer with the authority of the Holy Spirit working in us is encounter with Jesus, just as this encounter in the synagogue with these people was encounter. You need to find a way, and we'll come back to this in a minute, of prioritizing word in your life, framing your life up fundamentally about word and Holy Spirit. From that, everything else flows. It's what we said last week, and, and we're still saying it this week. The second authority that we see here are the authority of Jesus' words over evil spirits. Now last week, when we were looking at this passage, we saw there were going to be no miracles in Nazareth. And we saw that, that was actually a parallel for Jerusalem, which was a parallel for Israel. And we looked at the examples they gave there of the widow of Zarephath with Elisha. There were plenty of widows who needed help, but it was to someone outside of Israel that the help was given by Elijah. And we looked at the leper, Naaman, and there were plenty of lepers in Israel, but it was to someone, a foreigner, that that help was given to other nations. And we saw that as a general principle, lepers are not healed, and people who need help, they're not healed in this life. As a general principle, miracles don't happen. That's why they're called miracles. But they are signposts and foretastes most often of great commission work, of gospel spreading work, of blessing to the nation's work. Yes, there are miracles, but they are not meant to be personal vending machines. Miracles are not something that you put a little bit of a prayer in the vending machine and out pops the miracle you want. Miracles align with and are related to the coming of the kingdom of God. They are signposts and foretastes of what ultimately is what we really need. We should pray for, hope for, desire God to work miraculously with our brokenness. But we ultimately need full restoration. We ultimately the coming, the full coming of the kingdom, the full coming of Christ. It's not really about this life. It's not about this life alone. The kingdom is now, but it is not fully here now. And the miracles that we see and we taste in this moment, these are foretastes of the coming kingdom and signposts to Christ himself. So it's ironic 
that having been told that there aren't going to be all these miracles, you shouldn't expect these miracles in the hometown of Nazareth, he then goes on again and again and again to commit all these miracles, healing miracles, casting out demons miracles in chapters 4 and 5. And he's doing that because Jesus is announcing the breaking in of the kingdom. These miracles are here directly as signposts and foretastes. Here comes the kingdom and it comes with me. I am the righteous one. I am the one who fulfills the prophets. I am bringing the kingdom of God. I am ushering in the kingdom of God. Here it comes. Hear the authority of my words. See the authority I have over spirits and over brokenness in the world. Now we need to do a little bit of background here. We live in a post-secular world. Once upon a time we lived in a secular world where there was a tendency not to believe in spirits, uh, not to believe in evil spirits or demons. Now, and, and quite honestly, it wouldn't surprise me, given that fact that Satan decided and the evil spirits decided to keep a low profile might work. It sort of keeps us away from the idea that spirits really exist and stops people thinking about God and all of those things. But I feel as we move into a post-secular world, it wouldn't be surprising to see more active work in the spiritual world that's possible. I, I don't know, I do not know or pretend to know the mind of Satan. But I do want to have a look quickly here at what is going on because we, in the 11 years we've been at North Point, we've never talked about Satan. We've never talked about evil spirits. So it's important for us to think, well, what, what really is going on here? First of all, let me just say, that Satan is real and spirits, evil spirits, are real. This gospel that Luke wrote 30 years after this event was probably read in Capernaum, certainly while there were people around who had seen these miracles happen. People would have come and said, hey, were you here 30 years ago? Did you see this? And the answer would have been, yes, we saw it. There's no question that Capernaum people still alive could have confirmed what was going on there. So let's look scripturally quickly at what we do know about Satan and about demons. First of all, it's really important to know and hold in your hearts. Satan and demons are created. This is not a dualist world. There is not a whole lot of evil battling with a whole lot of good. Who's going to win? Is it going to be the good guys? Is it going to be the bad guys? No. God is the creator of all things. He created Satan and he created what we now call demons. Which is not to say that he created, and we can see that, for example, in Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. And we see here that Satan, the devil, whatever you want to call him, and the evil spirits that we now call evil were created. They are just creatures. They were created good and then they were corrupted by pride. The fall of Satan and his followers can be seen in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 if you're interested. If anyone wants more scriptural references, please come and ask me. So what does that mean for us as Christians? Well, when we have conversion experience when the Holy Spirit enters into our hearts it shifts our source of influence our tendency towards affections 
from Satan to God. And in fact, we see this, Paul himself describes this when he's standing before Agrippa talking about his own conversion experience. And he's told, you know, I was converted, I encountered Christ, I encountered the word and the power of Christ, and then Christ said, I'm going to send you off, and I am sending you to them, the Gentiles, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are and be placed among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And I want to make this point this is not a change or a shift from the material to the spiritual. This is a change or shift from affections to the things that are put in our hearts by the prince of darkness to affections that are put in our heart by God's affections. It's a change of orientation or a change of influence from a heart which is confronted by Satan to a, or controlled or influenced by the things around us to a heart which is influenced by God and the Holy Spirit. It really important to know is that believers cannot be possessed by evil spirits. We live in freedom. Look here at 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to 18. But when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and when the Spirit of the Lord, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory and being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And we see this in the passage we read today. The Holy Spirit doesn't make room in his heart, in our hearts, for demons to be there. The Holy Spirit, in fact, as soon as the, whole, the evil spirit in our passage sees Jesus, he says, what are you doing here? Have you come to destroy me? There is no co-residency in our hearts with the Holy Spirit and with evil spirits. However, that's not to say that the devil and his forces don't work against the believer. They do. First of all, we see in 1 Peter 5, 8 to 6, the devil will oppress and the, the devil will cause suffering. The devil will try to cause chaos and disrupt the spreading of the kingdom. He will use deception. He will try to entice us with the things of this world. He will dangle things and distract us and do whatever he can to try to, to play down the value of God and play up the temporal, cheap, superficially satisfying things of his kingdom. And he will tempt us. And we see that in Luke 4, 1 to 13. Jesus himself Earlier, before he preached in, Caper in uh, Nazareth, before he came to Capernaum, he was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. So the devil does oppress, he does cause suffering, he does try to deceive us, and he does tempt us, but he does not possess us as Christians. There is no room in our heart with the Holy Spirit. There is no, there is no cohabitation between the Holy Spirit and the demon. So Satan... And by the way, if we look at the Luke 14 passage, it's really important to see something else. It's really important to see how Jesus dealt with it. What was Jesus' response when, Jesus, when the devil came to tempt him? He quoted scripture. He knew the heart and mind of God himself. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit to have the affections of 
the Father. And with those affections, he said, no, your view of this is all wrong, Satan. I know what the true heart of my Father is like. And because he was steeped in word and prayer, the temptation of the devil was ineffective against him. And I guess the most important thing to take away is that Satan and his followers have lost. This is creature crushed by creator. There's no competition here. And the devil, and this is Revelation 20, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophets had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Not a good outcome if you're a demon or the devil himself. So we take that understanding, and it's really important. So Satan and the demons are creatures. They have no power over God. They were created good because God created everything good, but they were corrupted by their own pride and they fell. The conversion of the Holy Spirit shifts our affections from the things of the devil to the things of God. And believers cannot be possessed by evil spirits. We live in freedom, but the devil can and does work against us with oppression and suffering, deception, temptation. But ultimately, Satan is lost. The game is over. And Christ is victorious, and we are victorious with him. So then you might ask the question, wow, that's a lot of stuff in there. Why don't we ever focus on that? In fact, Dwayne Davenport, I'm not sure if he's on Zoom or not, he used to say to me, do you guys even believe in Satan? I never hear you mention Satan at all. I never hear you talk about the devil. And I, I, I answered him like, I'm going to answer you. If you, uh, if, you were a, if you were a basketball scout and you were putting together an all-American team, you'd be going out there looking. Who would you look for? I mean, how many of you know or have heard of Joel Anthony? Hands up if you've heard of Joel Anthony. You haven't? He's an NBA basketball player. He has the dubious distinction of being, having the worst statistics of anyone in the league. He has played more games with more time, never scoring a point or even getting a rebound than any other player in the NBA. He's probably one of the lowest paid, least successful NBA players. Now, what about Kevin Durant? How many of you heard of Kevin Durant? Few of you have heard of Kevin Durant, right? Considered to be the best basketball player of our time at the moment. So here we go. If you were an all-star coach looking to put together an all-star team, how much time would you focus on Joel Anthony and how much time would you focus on Kevin Durant? And the comparison here is not even a good one because they're both creatures. They're both men. We're talking about... God versus created. Now, I don't want to imply here that the devil is not powerful. And you know what? If I was to go one-on-one -on -one in basketball with Joel Anthony, despite the fact that he's the worst in the NBA, I'm sure he would convincingly defeat me. But you see, it's not one-on-one -on -one with Joel Anthony. It's not one-on-one -on -one with the devil. It's Holy Spirit versus devil. It's Kevin Durant versus Joel Anthony, I'm just the little guy on the sideline that gets passed to every now and again. You see, the point here is that the Holy Spirit, Jesus, is so much bigger, so much more significant, so much more the focus of where we need to be, 
that we don't spend a lot of time looking at Satan. In fact, the whole reason that we even hear this story today, even though we get excited, oh, casting out of demons, even though we get excited about this is about authority. It's about the authority of the word of Christ, and the demon casting out is just an example. We see that in Luke 11, verse 20. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This work of healing, this work of casting out demons, was to show as a signpost and a foretaste of what was to come. The other reason we don't focus on the devil is we don't want people to use spiritual excuses. The devil made me do it. Because you see, the devil made me do it just doesn't cut it. Because, in fact, we are given everything we need with the Holy Spirit to work against the devil. Ephesians 6, 10, 11, 10 and 11. Finally, my brethren, breathe strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, what is the first thing in the full armor of God? It's the sword of truth. It's the word of Christ himself. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. And perhaps what I like most of all, Psalm 119, verse 11, Your word I have hidden in my heart, that I may not sin against you. One last thing that I want to say. Possession is not mental illness. It's important that I make this point. Often we look back and think that demon possession is about mental illness. That is not the case. Demon possession is about demon possession. Just as people have physical illnesses, they also have mental illnesses. And I know that there's a tendency for us to sometimes pray you know, please take this spirit of anxiety out of this person. Please take this spirit of whatever. And those things are, are fine and good to pray. But I would encourage you, unless the, the demon himself has revealed himself, like in this passage, or God himself has revealed to you in some special way that someone has a genuine demon in them, you be careful about how you pray. That you pray for relief, that you pray for strength, that you pray for the work of the Holy Spirit but you don't presume possession in the way you pray. Let's get back to our passage. Just mentioned in verses 33 and 34 that the evil spirit knows who Jesus is. And that should be a warning to us, that should be a big warning to us, that theology and doctrine, whilst they may be important, are definitely not salvific. Having all of your knowledge ducks in a row does not save you and will not save you. We're not talking about knowledge in an existential or theoretical or intellectual way here. We're talking about Holy Spirit word relationship that's essential here. A spiritual, I, I, I sort of feel that we are, as a culture, spiritually anorexic. When someone has an eating disorder, they tend to actually not be able to eat very much because they fill up really quickly. They become spiritually, or they become malnourished. 
And I feel like as a culture, we are spiritually malnourished. We have a spiritual eating disorder. We're too used to not eating the Word of God and praying in the Holy Spirit. So it's important to make time to pray in the Word, to eat spiritual food. I'm repeating it again and again because it's so important. And it's about prioritizing. If you need to, give something up to do this. Do what you need to do. It's not about legalism. It's about joy and relationship. When I was first courting Patty, she lived on the Upper East Side, 95th Street, 96th Street. I lived on 182nd Street. I got up at 5 in the morning in the middle of traffic in New York, took a great bunch of flowers, drove down the west side, came across town in order to get to, get to leave a bunch of flowers with her doorman before I had to get to work at 8 o'clock. The whole exercise took three hours in New York traffic in the peak hour. Why? Because I cared about the relationship. There was joy there. And you might say, well, that sounds like hard work. I've tried to read, I've tried to pray, I've tried to immerse myself in Scripture. And I say, yes, it is and it can be. But I remember very much being at a conference in New York when we were talking about another discipline, the Sabbath. A discipline which I had struggled for many years to actually faithfully implement. And they were asking someone who had practiced the Sabbath for a while, what if we were to tell you you could no longer practice the Sabbath? What if we were to tell you? And I was like, oh, thank goodness. I've got to stop struggling with this Sabbath thing. And she's like, oh my gosh, I would never let you tell me that. I delight in the Sabbath. Because as I've practiced this discipline, as I've moved into it, as I've experienced the joy of it, as I move through the hardness, I've tasted the blessing. And sometimes these disciplines are like hard candies that have a soft center. You have to practice them until you get to the soft center. Eat healthy because you want to keep eating healthy. Start small, but start digesting Scripture in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now in verse 35, Jesus speaks and out comes the Spirit. The casting out takes place by the authority of his word. The authority of his word again. And it's not magic, it's not ritual, it's not ceremony. It's simply the authority of word of Christ spoken. There's no fight here. The demon doesn't say, put him up, Jesus, let's see, if, let's juke it out. The demon knows he's toast. Simple acquiescence. The spirit hands over the man to Jesus. In a sense, there is a destruction. The demon says, are you here to destroy me? Jesus answers, uh, yeah, actually I am. It's a signpost and a foretaste for the defeat of all evil. This is a foretaste of the coming kingdom. This is a signpost to the one who delivers us from that evil. It's a pictorial representation of what his coming kingdom means. So I want to conclude by saying that the main event here is not the evil spirit. I know we've talked about it a lot, first time in 11 years, so perhaps it was necessary. But the main event here is not the evil spirit, not even the casting out of the evil spirit. The main event in this text is the authority of Jesus' word and the amazement, 
the shock, the incredible conviction that occurred because of it. Let me read verses 36 and 37 again. All the people were amazed and they said to each other, What words are these? With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. We have access to Jesus' words. We have, we have the ability to approach this man whose words of authority by definition lead to our submission. And I think that's another problem we have with, with word and spirit. By definition, authority means submission. It's submission to the good. It's submission to freedom. But it's submission nonetheless. And quite honestly, the junk food of the prince of this world is so much more appealing than vegetables and carrots and spinach, than the healthy diet of word that, that comes through submission into freedom. So another, another necessity in accessing this authoritative word and Holy Spirit is the willingness to come prayerfully and with a humble heart. Pray for a humble heart. Pray for a willingness to submit. There's a term which I think I've experienced myself, the oppositional Christian. Everything I read bothers me. Everything, and I, I learn to submit, to be humble, to sit under, to be transformed by the authority of God's word. And I think it's important for us to realize that the response of Jesus here, which is, which is proclaiming the breaking of the kingdom, the kingdom, his authority of word, this signpost, this pictorial representation of what the coming kingdom means, this authority that he is the fulfillment of the prophets, this acknowledgement that he is the only one that's righteous and unless he gives you your righteousness, you can never make it into the kingdom of God. What is the response to this? Well, it's exactly what you'd expect to be, to be a blessing to the nations. What is the beginning, and we do it all through Missions Month, what is the response that, Jesus, that we have to Jesus' authority? Jesus in the Great Commission says, all authority on heaven and earth, so that's over disease, that's over spirits, that's over everything in creation. He spoke it into existence, and he will sp speak it into recreation, new creation. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Make disciples. Get down and get into the business of being the people of God, building the kingdom of God with the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. All authority in heaven has been given to me. Let's see what this is all about. The breaking in of the kingdom. The man of authority has come. His words are powerful. And we are invited into that mission with him. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, in this passage we see how much authority Jesus has. We can get distracted by the trinkets, the spectacular, the miraculous. Ironically, they are there not to distract, but to point back to you to foretaste the coming kingdom. Help us to see them in those ways. Help us not to be distracted in our lives by things which really are trinkets and confusing. Help us to be 
aware of, able to acknowledge the existence of, of, of Satan. Let's not pretend that he's not there or powerful, that his minions aren't there to harm, to distract, to get in the way of us going, making disciples, baptizing in your name, teaching to obey. But help us to remember that the reason we're safe is because you are with us to the end of the age. Your spirit, your Holy Spirit is in us and there is no cohabitation. Bless us, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.